Well, let me begin by um, reminding us that while we have been incredibly blessed as a nation, we are one nation who will stand before the throne of Jesus in heaven and gladly worship him with all other nations. So let me, let me call us to worship with Revelation 7. And the Apostle John is writing. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, um, we long for that day when we will join with everybody you've redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation, and we will sing praises and we'll fall on our faces because of your glory and because of your humility, as we think that you're the lamb who was slain. And uh, meanwhile, Lord, you've placed us here in this nation that you've blessed abundantly. And um, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of, uh, of your great blessing, that we would be grateful for it. And most of all, that we would reach out to those in this country and call them to come to your country, to your kingdom, um, so you'd be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just jump right into a message. And um, then we will have uh, a time of prayer for our country. So um, let, let me begin with this thought. So I was, I was looking at, uh, for a video on YouTube, you know, the man on the street type of interview and um, knowledge about the 4th of July, man on the street interview. And I found one and a man was, I think he was on a, like a pier um, jutting out into, could it could have been on the East Coast or West Coast, but he was just asking people questions about the upcoming 4th of July. And the first lady he interviewed, he uh, asked the question, what are we celebrating today? So I guess it was last year. And she said, our independence. And he, he should have stopped right there because then he went on and said, well, you got that right. Our independence from, from who? And she said, like rolling her eyes, the South. Um, <laughs> so uh, she thought we are celebrating our independence from the South. He asked another person, um, what year was the Declaration of Independence signed? And, and first she said, 
oh, I know this, 1964, no, 1984. Um, another one, who signed the Declaration of Independence? And they said, Abraham Lincoln. So there seems to be a lot of confusion of the Revolutionary War with the Civil War in our country. Now, one guy got all the answers right, but he had a really thick foreign accent. I think he was like from Colombia, and uh, he got all the answers right. So, so just to be clear, today, Americans are celebrating our independence from Britain, from England. Um, it happened in 1776 when the founders signed a document called the Declaration of Independence. And then we fought a war called the Revolutionary War, a war of revolution or revolt against King George of England, who had soldiers stationed in this new country. <clears throat> now, here's a question. I want to ask, was the Revolutionary War a biblical war? And um, you may be surprised. I mean, most Americans would go, well, of course it was. We wouldn't be America without that Revolutionary War. And you go, well, that's this is great history. What does it matter? Well, if you pay attention to the news today, there's talk of uh, revolution and there's talk of secession. Um, so Christians kind of need to know the theological issues behind that question of revolution and secession. Okay. Now, amazingly, we've been going through Ecclesiastes and today we're in chapter Eight, which gives a command about um, citizens' responsibility to the king. So um, here, here we are in Revelation eight, and I'm going to start in verse two. And you go, how did amazingly, how did that all line up? Well, kind of the sovereignty of God, and kind of me deciding to cover all of seven instead of just part of seven last week. So here we are in Ecclesiastes 8, and Solomon, the king, says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does what he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now, if we compare Solomon's uh, directive here, keep the king's command, with Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, Here's kind of the general directive that we get from Scripture about obeying those in authority over us. The, de the default position for the Christian is to honor 
and obey those in authority over us. And I, I put in there, even the ungodly. Okay. We don't, we don't get to say, well, so-and-so is so ungodly. I'm not going to honor them in authority. You got to remember when Paul and Peter wrote this guy named Nero was the king or the, uh, uh, was Caesar and he was far from ungodly. But then let me, in, in this general directive, point out there are exceptions to this general rule and difficult cases, okay? And you, you go, well, that's, that's not helpful. Well, it is helpful because the general uh, continuous message of Scripture is obey the king, obey those in authority. There are exceptions, and there are difficult cases. So there is a general principle to follow. So let me let me take us quickly through um, some of these. One, one uh, in, verse, in verse two, it says, I say, keep the king's command. Again, that is the default position. What, why should we obey secular rulers? Well, be, even, even though they are secular, they may not acknowledge Jesus, the concept of government is a God-ordained institution to bring order to every society, okay? So while Cyrus, the Persian king, was not a follower of Jehovah God, um, Isaiah calls him, or God speaking in Isaiah, calls him the anointed. So government is good, generally. Um, the king's commands are for our good, and the default position for the Christian is to obey the order and the directives of the king. Now, there are exceptions. What are the exceptions? Well, when the command of the king goes in direct conflict with God's command. So in... in uh, uh, for example, Acts chapter 5, the apostles are out preaching about Jesus, and thousands are coming to faith and getting baptized. And the Sanhedrin, and that would be the Jewish government uh, under the Roman government over the Jewish people, they arrest Peter and the apostles and say, stop preaching in Jesus' name. And here's how uh, Peter and the apostles respond. We, uh, so this is the, the Sanhedrin. Remember, same guys who crucified Jesus. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, <clears throat> we must obey God rather than men. So there is the, um, the exception. When government commands you to do something in direct conflict with what God has called us to do, we have not only a right, but a responsibility to say, no, we're going to obey God. Um, you remember in the book of Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, they're told along with the whole world to bow before a statue. And they, now they don't start a rebellion, but they don't bow. They refuse to, to obey the king. And they're now realize when you, when you, refuse to obey, 
you need to be willing to pay the penalty. And the penalty in their case was to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And God may rescue you or, he, or you may become a martyr. Either way, win-win, right? But um, the, the, first, the first thing we see is obey the king. There's an exception when we uh, are, are commanded to do something in opposition to a clear command of scripture. In verse 3, or actually uh, second part of verse 2, here's why you should obey the king, because of God's oath to him. Now you say, what do you mean God's oath to him? Well, for the kings of Israel, they were actually anointed by God to be the king. And in the case of secular government, secular leaders are not necessarily anointed, but they are appointed by God. And we do see that in, in Romans 13, which says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. Okay. Every authority uh, is in there. They didn't get in there apart from God's will. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Uh, so they're either anointed or appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And, and um, those who debate over capital punishment, here's, here would be um, the, the key. Unmute. Was I muted there for a second? Okay. Um, for, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So government has um, been given authority to bear the sword, right? For he is a servant of God, again, okay, he's appointed by God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So actually law and order and police and justice systems are all part of God's justice, um, as imperfect as they can be. But the concept of a sword-bearing government with law and order is of God. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, okay, but also for the sake of conscience. You want a pure conscience before God. Uh, for because of this, you also, ooh, you're going to love this, pay taxes, right? For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Now, look at this. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Pay your employees. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So, regardless of who's in that office of president or governor, there is a respect and honor that citizens of the kingdom of God 
owe to rulers in the kingdom of man. Okay. Um, you go, no, that this, this can't be, this can't apply to people we know. Well, when Peter and Paul wrote, they were thinking of Caesar who was worshiped as God. In Peter's case, it was Nero who crucified him upside down, yet this all still applies to the human authority, all right? So let's go back to the Ecclesiastes text. It says, be not hasty to go from his presence. In other words, when you're summonsed before the king, don't turn your back and walk out, okay? Do not take your stand in an evil cause, and I believe this means against the king. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, rebelling against the one in authority, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? All right. So again, the general principle of scripture, citizens of the kingdom of God are to be obedient and subject to and honoring of those in authority uh, in the country they are in, and they're to, to give allegiance uh, to them. Now, what about the exceptions and the hard cases? Let me, let me go through six test cases uh, applying this principle, and, and we're going we're gonna to camp on the Revolutionary War for, for a little bit longer. But let, let me give you, first of all, the example of David and Saul. So Saul is the first king of Israel, and he's becoming um, prominent and followed by everybody, and then God anoints little David as the next king of Israel. But Saul sees that people are following David and he becomes insanely jealous of David. He is tormented by demons and he gathers an army to hunt David down uh, in the cliffs down by the, the Dead Sea. And uh, there's a, the, the one incident where David's hiding in a cave and Saul happens to come into that cave to relieve himself and david's men david and a few of his men are in back in the cave and they say go sneak up behind him god has brought him in here this is this is your opportunity god promised that you'd be the king go kill him david sneaks up behind him takes his knife and cuts off a piece of his robe and goes back and he feels really bad that he ruined his robe and then david says to his men who urged David to kill Saul. He said this to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Okay. This is God's oath to the King. He's the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So here's a case where David says, wait a minute. I may have every, legal right because i'm in war against saul i could kill him but i'm not going to do it i see him as the lord's anointed if god wants him out and me in it's not going to be at my hand 
it's going to be at God's hand. And of course, during a war with the Philistines, um, Saul actually falls on his sword and kills himself. And guess who God puts in as the next king? David. So here we, we see an example of respect and divine replacement. Okay. Let me give you another example. So David's king and his son Absalom rebels against David. Not just, not just son, father-son rebellion, but Absalom gathers a following with soldiers and warriors and david actually has to flee from jerusalem um, from absalom's rebellion but um <laughs> absalom's riding on his donkey and his head gets caught in a tree and he had beautiful hair it was his downfall i think I don't, whether it was actually his head or his hair um, we don't know, but he's hanging from a tree by his head and uh, Joab comes by, takes a sword and kills Absalom. So here we have an example of the rebel against the king having God's wrath destroy him. All right, let's take a look at the next thing. Solomon um, is to be the next king according to God, according to David, but his brother, his half-brother, Adonijah, tries to get to the throne. He declares himself king. And you remember on, on Palm Sunday, we, we saw how David endorsed Solomon. He just put Solomon on his own donkey. And then Adonijah was filled with fear. He realized he's usurped, he's rebelled against the true king. And Actually, Solomon gives him some grace, but he blows it, and Adonijah gets killed, right? So here we have another example of rebellion against the anointed king, followed by God's wrath, okay? Now, you go, well, these are all great, but these are all like Israel, rebel against Israel kings. Well, let's, let's go to Babylon, the king is Belshazzar, and Daniel is on his council as a wise advisor. Belshazzar is being disrespectful to the God of Israel. He stole all the, the uh, valuables from the Jerusalem temple, including the cups that they drank out of, and he's drinking wine, getting drunk, and toasting his pagan gods with the, the cups from Jerusalem. And then a hand appears on the wall and it writes, Main Tekel Parson. And it says, uh, Belshazzar's knees knocked together. He was so terrified. And they go, what does this mean? Go get Daniel. He's smart. God will give him the interpretation. Daniel says, well, uh, and, and it's in, it's in um, Aramaic. And it's Main Tekel Parson Main. Daniel says means numbered. Tekel means weighed. Parson means divided. What does that mean? Uh, Belshazzar, God says, you have, uh, your days are numbered. You've been weighed and found wanting. And now your kingdom will be divided and give, given to the Medes and the Persians. And then the next verse says this. 
that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, here's a case where Daniel is serving a non-believing pagan king, right? He respects the king by serving him. He doesn't rebel against the king, but God preserves Daniel while he replaces the king, not just with another king, but with another kingdom. And it all happens instantaneously. Okay. So the theme here is a respect for the king. Rebels get punished. God moves the people on the chessboard. Okay. Now, what about the Revolutionary War? Now, um, again, those of you who love history, you're going to like this. Those of you who don't, um, hang in there. This is, this, this is really interesting. Revolutionary War. Um, what, you're, what we're going to discover is that the, let's, let's put it this way, the, the, the four men I admire the most from uh, John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Wayne Grudem. I've been, I've, my theology has been formed by these, more, these four men more than anybody else. They all disagree on the question. The pastors who preached around the time of the Revolutionary War, some were against it, some were for it. Who was right? All right. So let me give you these different perspectives. MacArthur, in an interview with a, with a million clicks, an interview by Ben Shapiro, said this. I, I'm to be a citizen who submits to the powers that be. I'm not to be a revolutionary. We don't start riots. That's not a Christian thing to do. We don't even start revolutions. And you could argue about the American Revolution, whether that was actually legitimately a Christian act or not. We don't start revolutions. We submit to the powers that be, and we work to change the culture from the inside, one soul at a time. Uh, elsewhere, years ago, he wrote this, people have mistakenly linked democracy and political fr freedom to Christianity. That's why many contemporary evangelicals believe the American Revolution was completely justified, both politically and scripturally. They follow the arguments of the Declaration of Independence, which declares that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are divinely endowed rights. But such a position is contrary to the clear teaching and commands of Romans 13. So the, now here he says this, so the United States was actually born out of a violation of New Testament principles, and any blessing God has bestowed on America have become, have come be uh, in spite of that disobedience by the founding fathers. So in answer to the question, was the Revolutionary War biblical, MacArthur would say no. Okay. Now, um, what about R.C. Sproul? He was asked this question, and his answer was, it's complicated. Okay. And he points out that during the time of the Revolution, there were Anglican churches and Presbyterian churches. The Anglican churches and pastors said um, there was no justification to go to war. Now, you could say, well, 
the very definition of an Anglican is it's the Church of England, okay? But theologically, they would go to Romans 13 and say there's no justification for, for uh, revolution against England. Presbyterians, on the other hand, pointed to the Magna Carta. That was, it's kind of like England's, dec, uh, England's constitution under which, okay, the colonists in America were under the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta gave, and there's this principle called the principle of lesser magistrates. It gave lesser magistrates the authority to protect their citizens against tyranny from higher ones. So let's say you're in a state and the governor, um, you know, the, the, the governor is really protective of the people in his state and the president declares um, you can't be uh, a Christian or um, we will chop off the left hand of all right handed people. And um, the governor says, that's crazy. And the governor, the lesser magistrate, has an authority to, to say no. So um, Presbyterians would justify revolution because of the tyranny of the king and the authority of the government here in the United States, which was still under the king, saw the king's actions as illicit, and they were just exercising the principle of lesser magistrates. Um, so Sproul doesn't give a straight answer. He, he says it's complicated, but at the end of, of it, he says, um, but what I would give if our, our taxes were only on T. Um, <laughs> so, so MacArthur hardcore revolutionary war was wrong. Sproul is complicated, really complicated. Wayne Grudem, who has not only written uh, a systematic theology, but he has a, a book that's just as thick on the, the Christian and politics. And Grudem is the Revolutionary War was righteous. It was absolutely godly. And he argues more along the lines of, of these Presbyterians, the principle of lesser magistrates. Um, on the Got Questions website, their argument is, it, 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 again, it's, it's weighing the facts, but the main argument for those in favor of the revolution would be that the war was self-defense. Okay, so let me read this. The colonists saw the war as a defensive action, not as an offensive war. And it's true that in 1775 and 76, the Americans had presented the king with formal appeals for reconciliation. In other words, there was dip diplomacy going back. They were trying to get along. These peaceful pleas were met with armed military force and several violations of British common law and the English Bill of Rights. And then here's the big thing. In 1770, the British fired upon unarmed citizens in the Boston Massacre. At Lexington, the command was, don't fire unless fired upon. The colonists therefore saw themselves as defending themselves after the conflict had been initiated by the British. So, so uh, this paragraph would say, hey, it wasn't an aggressive war 
um, saying we want to be our own country. It was a defensive war uh, defending citizens against, you know, they fired first. Okay. Let me give you one more on this 4th of July. Um, Douglas Wilson, he uh, argues that the war was justified. Um, and, and it was justified, I guess you could say, um, on the principle that the tax, the T-tax, was coming from an unauthorized authority. So, so get, get this. There's a king, King George, over English Parliament in England. And there's King George, who's over the, the colonists, but they had their own parliament or Congress, so to speak, all under the same king. The command to pay a tax on tea came not directly from the king, but from English parliament. And Doug Wilson says this, um, for something comparable, try to imagine yourself as a cattle rancher in Wyoming. And one day receiving in the mail a tax bill from the legislature in, uh, of South Carolina. The issue would not be whether the amount of the tax was reasonable in the abstract or whether you could easily afford it. The issue would be whether you owed it or not. The issue would be that there should be no taxation without representation. Okay. So, uh, you know, some people say, oh, come on, a tax, a T on tax, just pay the tax. But uh, Wilson is arguing, wait, there's an illegitimacy. There are people who, whose authority we're not even under who are uh, taxing us. Okay. So um, what, what are we to do with, with these guys who disagree? Well, um, I, I'm not claiming to be some great historian on the Revolutionary War. Here's where I'm at. The fact that they disagree and they're all very well-respected uh, theologians should cause us to go really slow and not jump on the, the revolutionary bandwagon immediately. Okay, slow, thoughtful, prayerful is the biblical pattern here. All right, let me, let me give one more test case, and that would be the test case of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, so this was under Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. He wrote... Um, he wrote Life Together. He wrote The Cost of Discipleship. Um, so Bonhoeffer was actually, as a pastor, somehow involved in giving information, so they would call him a spy, in an effort to, to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Okay. Um, if, if you've read the book Bonhoeffer, the Eric Metaxas book, it's a big, big biography about Bonhoeffer and all the details. And um, so the, the question was asked uh, to John Piper, 
um, was Bonhoeffer right to be a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler? Okay. Now, l- let me say this. This is such a unique situation that, that, first of all, I would advise us to be slow to play the Hitler card. What I mean by that is uh, when, uh, when people in America get into political debates, at some point they play the Hitler card and say, well, your side is Hitler. But let's not be playing the Hitler card too soon. Okay. And then I would also say, let's be slow to play the Bonhoeffer card. You know, basically... You've got a pastor looking at a guy who many thought was the Antichrist. Do you just let him go or do you actively try to take him down? Now, John Piper was asked that question once. And um, his answer was, first of all, that World War II and our involvement in it and the Allies' involvement in uh, World War II was justified. Now, now there's a, a thing called just war doc, uh, doctrine. Um, what is a just war? And this is this is just a really quick summary of just war theory. Uh, its books have been written on it, but basically, before you go to war, uh, you should ask these questions: Is it a last resort? In other words, have you tried all diplomatic efforts to prevent war? Um, is there a just cause or are you just grabbing land okay is it declared by a valid authority in other words a a a group you know valley brook couldn't take a vote and say let's go to war against china um it it would have to be declared by the leaders of our country is there probable success okay even jesus says you know count the cost don't go to war with your ragtag band of people um, and know that they're all going to die. Now, um, in some cases, that's you have to do that, um, but you should make that calculation. Then there's the question of proportionality. Um, the force used to fight the war should be not more than necessary. Some would would question the whole uh, dropping of two atom bombs on uh, on the Japanese, but that's a that's an afterthought. Um, you. you you know, that's that's a debatable thing. Then is there an exit strategy? Or are you going to be in this war forever? So um, Piper, back to Piper, was asked, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrong to plot against Hitler? And um, he says, well, it was it was just for the countries to go to war against Hitler. Now, what about Bonhoeffer? And he says this, I want to just step back and say that I'm going to be real slow to condemn Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay, so he's he's of the uh, boy. This is such a special case. I, I'm not. I, I'm going to be careful to condemn him. I couldn't see myself at this point in any situation that I can think of where I want to be involved in an assassination plot. That's because of the things that are governing my life biblically, from thou shall not kill, to love thy neighbor as yourself, to demonstrate the Lord's rule in your life through all meekness and patience in taking whatever suffering comes your way. I'm not going to, uh, to just try, I, I'm, I'm going to just try and be real slow to condemn Bonhoeffer here. In general, 
I would say we do better in witnessing to Christ by being willing to suffer and not kill than if we go the other route. Now, again, there would be those all over the map and say, of course, it was justified. But again, I think the tentativeness of these men should give us pause from too quickly jumping on the rebellion train and, and really being slow and studying and praying over Romans 13 before being uh, too quick. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right here. Um, but there's some, some history behind the Revolutionary War. There's some biblical truth that, that the you know, general principle, government is ordained of God, obey the king. There are exceptions and there are difficult cases. Okay. So what I'd like us to do now is spend some time um, as a church praying for our country and uh, if, if you have some specific prayer requests, we can take those. But let me, let me just give you these two scriptures um, as kind of guidelines in general. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, is speaking for God, and Israel is in captivity in Babylon. And this is what God says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Pray for Babylon, is what he says. In 1 Timothy 2, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings, okay, again, Nero, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Remember, you know, our ultimate goal here is the salvation of multitudes, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 